Hey, we've got two brand new pieces of merch, and all our t-shirts are available for sale once again at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We made posters for our show in D.C. based on the ending of season six and the convention, and they turned out so awesome. Um, you might have seen the image on our Instagram or our Twitter, but it's a beautiful drawing full of little West Wing and West Wing Weekly Easter eggs. We sold most of them at the show, but we have a few left, and you should definitely get one before they run out. Besides the poster, the other new piece of merch that we made comes just in time for the 4th of July. You remember this. It's a key. Francis Scott key. It's the Francis Scott key key. We made the Francis Scott key 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 chain. It's a beautiful little antique brass key on a brass key ring, and it makes the perfect gift for the Marion Coatsworth hay in your life. I'm Marion Coatsworth hay. <laughs> We only have a few of these left from our show, but they're available now, and we're making more because they've been going really fast. Plus, once again, all our shirts and the What's Next baseball cap, they're all back too. So if you've been waiting to get something for yourself as a gift or for a friend, now's the time. It'll all be available to order until the end of June. So get that limited edition stuff while the podcast is still a thing. That's right. We're coming down to the last season. So go now. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Everlane. Everlane makes great clothes. They make essentials, the kinds of things you need to wear every day. T-shirts and jeans and button-downs and sweaters, and they go great with everything. That is right. That is why the answer to what does Izzy, my daughter, what does she want for her birthday for over a decade has been a gift card to Everlane. I give Everlane as gifts, too. It's an awesome gift. But now I buy a lot of Everlane clothes. Yeah, I mean, I tend to have a lot of opinions about my friends' clothes, and giving them Everlane clothes is a nice, gentle way to nudge them towards stylishness in a way that doesn't feel too intrusive because they know that it's a cool brand. That would be a good slogan, a nudge towards stylishness. Everlane. <laughs> you can check out some of our favorite Everlane items at everlane.com slash westwing. By the way, they also make shoes now. I own a pair. They're super comfortable and stylish. That's right. You can find the shoes and everything else that we love at everlane.com slash westwing. And when you start there, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash westwing. Again, it's everlane.com slash westwing. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about episode 21 from season six. It's called Things Fall Apart. This episode was written by Peter Noah and directed by Nelson McCormick. It first aired on March 30th, 2005. I don't believe we've heard the name Nelson McCormick before. Is that somebody who's directed the West Wing before? No, I think not. This is his first of what will turn out to be two episodes of the West Wing. He hmm. also uh, directed an episode called Transition, which we'll get to. Oh, we'll get to it. Joining us later on this episode, Jennifer Palmieri, communications director for the Hillary Clinton campaign, and formerly for the Obama White House. What do you think of this one? I I like the plot of this episode. I think it's interesting what happens with the convention and the nomination process, but the execution of it I have issues with here and there. Really just a few moments here and there in the writing. I think we will find ourselves in accord as I wrote down, great bones, not enough meat. Hey, look at that. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. 
And before we jump into our discussion, here's a synopsis from Warner Brothers. The success of the impeccably organized Republican convention contrasts with the Democrats who look in disarray as the candidates continue to battle to become the Democratic Party presidential nominee. Bartlett asks Leo to take control and organize the upcoming convention. Meanwhile, the International Space Station develops a leak and is losing oxygen, jeopardizing the lives of the three astronauts aboard. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. And it is. Again, I mean, those are the bones, and those are good bones. The episode begins with footage of the Republican National Convention. We see Darren Gibson again, and I felt a little bit like nice callback, and another part of me felt like there's got to be more Republicans than this. I think I just, I have such a animus for that guy. He's such a jerk. We know this is a person who was going to out Leo during the congressional hearing and has popped up here and there. He's a really annoying jerk. And I thought, oh, they even give him a spot at the RNC. It just seemed like maybe too much. But at the same time, I did appreciate that they brought him back. Yeah. He's a thorn in the Democrat side. Yeah. Yeah. We also get the return of Ed O'Neill as Governor Baker. Huzzah. And that's because we see the strategy being laid out by the Russell campaign. They're the front runner by a tiny bit, and they're trying to position themselves so that they can offer the vice presidency to Santos, thus clearing, you know, thus creating some party unity and giving them like a clear winner for who will be the the nominee with Russell on top and Santos as vice president. Feels like a really smart situation, practical situation. But then they've also got this backup of Ed O'Neill. In case Santos says no, they've got Governor Baker from Pennsylvania, which means they could actually eke out a win anyway. Right. It looks like a reasonable strategy from the Russell campaign, neutralize the candidate who's nipping at their heels and also broaden Russell's appeal with Santos on the ticket. Latino vote. There's mention from Leo, which I bumped on at first, the idea of, I think Leo or somebody says, adding Santos will also put California back in play. It's weird to think of California as a place that isn't firmly in the Democratic nominee's pocket. Well, it's supposed to be kind of a surprising thing. It's because Vinick is both moderate and from California. Vinick's a moderate. States will be in play. The Democrats are used to counting on. We need to protect our flank. Vinick's. Yeah. We also forget that, actually, I guess California as such a deep, deep blue state is a, well, it's a more recent development than I think I realized that it's a question of changing demographics of California and that for a long time, I think for decades into the late 80s, California tended to vote Republican in the presidential. Really? Yeah. Here's a, uh, a fact lit. From 1952 through 1988, Republicans won every presidential election except the landslide loss of Barry Goldwater in 64 in California. Really? Yeah, more than 30 years. Well, things have definitely changed. And in our world of the West Wing, it reflects the current demographics. Calculus, yes. So they need to figure something out. There are two strategies that they have to work on at once. One is how to get to the nomination, but also how to get to the nomination in a way that might even give them a chance to compete against Vinick. Yes. And then there's the calculus on the other side. Should they go with Baker, their number two choice that puts Pennsylvania in play, which tends to be a swing state. Right. Pennsylvania at the moment, at least on the Democratic side, is in the Santos column. Mm -hmm. So there are really three agendas, I guess. One is the, the Russell campaign. They want him to be the nominee. One is the Santos campaign. They want him to be the nominee. And the other is sort of the larger Democratic Party agenda, which is we want to get in here and set ourselves up to not look foolish and also um, come out, you know, with the strongest chance of winning the general election. 
Yes, and in a progression from President Bartlett's little Oval Office talk about let's keep this clean and positive in terms of campaigning, President Bartlett through Leo in this episode gets explicit with what they would like to have happen, which is to have Santos accept that number two slot. You need to take the VP deal. And we're considering it. Not consider it. Take it. The party, the president needs you to accept. Yeah, the pressure is really high. And it's not just coming from the White House. We see even, you know, Santos is getting calls himself from senators. Everybody wants this to break in that way. And ultimately, probably not surprisingly, he doesn't go for it. Yes, and this is one of my big disappointments of this episode. It's the failure to sort of uh, drill deeper beyond... Uh, what we kind of think is going to happen, and beyond these sort of tantalizing plot points that have been raised, we ultimately get a sit-down between Santos and Russell, and then we leave the room before the substance of their conversation happens. And it's, I think, an ill-conceived feint. It's almost as if it's building suspense so that Josh and Santos are in the elevator. We don't really know what he decided. They walked out. People's uh, countenances were kind of inscrutable. But I think we know what he decided. And I don't think there's enough value in the quote-unquote surprise of the reveal that he turned Russell down to have denied us the scene between them. I would like to have seen what maybe Russell said that finally helped Matt Santos decide he didn't want to be number two to this guy. I think there could have been an interesting moment. Yeah, it feels a little bit like an action movie where they finally come across the uh, object that they've been hunting for. It's in this building and there's a million bad guys defending it. And the hero or heroes run in while the camera stays outside the building. And then they, <laughs> you just hear a bunch of noise and then they run out with the object. Like, we got it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And then it's compounded further, I think, in the interactions between Josh and Santos and then Josh and Leo, where Josh ultimately tells Leo, I told him to go in there and look for a reason to say yes, and he didn't, and I was wrong. But we never really get a deeper understanding of why Josh first thought yes and then admits later that no was the correct answer. I thought it lacked a little bit of credibility in the beginning when Josh brings the offer to Santos and then just kind of lays it there. That's unlike Josh. You'd think Josh would have laid it out right there. Well, this is what I think we should do. You know, now you sit with it. But we just don't get a deeper understanding of anyone's thinking, really. My favorite part about that first scene, it's, it comes right before the credits. Josh comes in and says, The Russell campaign, in return for us releasing our convention delegates, prepared to name Matthew Santos as the Democratic nominee for Vice President of the United States. And then we come back from the credits, and the first thing that Santos says is, Vice President. And I thought, the way he says it, I was like, like he's surprised, like maybe they were going to offer him president? <laughs> Here's the deal. You become president. <laughs> In exchange for your delegates. <laughs> and I want your Netflix sign-in. <laughs> I just don't, I really don't understand that one little bit of performance. <laughs> Vice funny. president. <laughs> My take on why we don't get Josh sort of furiously laying out the reasons why he should do it is I think maybe this is the result of a character arc for him. You know, he has been pushing against Santos time and time again. And I think he's learning that to some extent, he can't influence him on certain big decisions. And also sometimes he's been wrong. Like there've been moments where he's pushed his opinion. Santos has gone another way entirely and been borne out to be the, the correct one. I liked this for Josh as sort of being a more hesitant take. 
Yeah, I get that. I just still think a more interesting manifestation of his development as a campaign manager would have been like, let's really dig in to everything, and then I'm going to leave you with it. Right. I, I, I get that it's your decision. Right. But it makes him more effective in one sense that he's come to this realization that this guy, Santos, is his own man and his own candidate. But I still felt like, again, like the meat wasn't there. Yeah, you want him to break out the whiteboard. Yeah, there you go. By the way, I recently finished Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I don't know if you finished it. Yes, actually, I love that show. I have not finished it. If I can spoil one thing for you, and it's not a real spoiler, but uh, there's a moment where the character Daryl explains to Rachel's trying to make a a very hard decision. And uh, he says, well, I have this, I have this system of how I make decisions and maybe you might want to try it. And it's a system he calls Columns. And it's, uh, there's three choices she's trying to decide between and they write on a whiteboard the, the three things. And then underneath each, they list the things that are good about them. And she's, she's like, oh, it really is just columns. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. By the way, you know, they also did uh, recently a crazy ex-girlfriend live at Radio City Music Hall. Mm-hmm. And this great little clip of Lynn doing a little salsa on stage with Gabriel Ruiz. And maybe we can link to that. It's pretty great. Oh, wow. That's exciting. So Josh really, you know, maybe some columns would have been in order. I think so. I use them when I order Chinese food. I use them when I build Greek architecture. Hmm. That is sound. (laughs) They have a lot of uses. We also meet the chair of the DNC in this episode. And you might recognize who that is from the line when he says, I'm the chair of the DNC to the president. (laughs) Lest you forget. Yeah. And I was trying to think, I know that there are certain expository beats that you have to hit in order to tell your story, but I, in my memory, now I got to go back and listen to our old episodes of our podcast. I feel like this is the kind of thing that gets handled a little more elegantly in other episodes. Even just what we were just talking about, like the introduction of Bruno Gianelli, having Margaret ask Leo, who's Bruno Gianelli? And he tells her, and the thing that makes it nice is you've got Bruno on the other side of the door hearing them make the, you know, there's a dramatization of it that feels like it's getting the information, but it also, it's doing, it's multitasking. Right. I agree. I'm the vice president of Clunkalunk Exposition. Exactly. He might even be the president, I think, actually. I think probably so. He was offered vice president and he said, vice president? Vice president. president. <laughs> I was just thinking. The president of Vice? Yeah. Well, and <laughs> I knew I was racing you for you, that. No, you really got there. Yeah. And then I'm like, the vice president. And the people who are the vice presidents at Vice, that's where I thought it got, might get really confusing. <laughs> yeah. So, what's your title? Vice president. Oh, congratulations. Ooh, you're the top guy, huh? No, no. I'm one of the vice presidents. <laughs> you have multiple presidents at Vice? Okay. It's good. It's like an Abbott and Costello for the 21st century. <laughs> okay. So, back to the ineffectual DNC chair. Mm-hmm. who gives us this really cringeworthy metaphor. And the president has a similar reaction to it that I did when, when he says, They're not listening to the nanny anymore. We may be in danger of overextending the metaphor. We need daddy to step in. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. It's like one, you can go one of two ways as a writer. You're like, eh, should I, I could either write better dialogue or have another character criticize the, what the other guy is saying. <laughs> Yeah. I'll go with number two. It was a piece of number two. Boom. (laughs) After that yicky piece of uh, dialogue, we go to CJ's office where the NASA administrator is uh, telling her about the situation with the space station. There's a space shuttle in Gail's fishbowl. 
good catch. <laughs> we've, we've given short shrift to Gail's fishbowl for the last couple of seasons. I think there was a time when I thought we just wouldn't have enough to discuss in the podcast. And like, and every episode, I'll mention the fishbowl. <laughs> <laughs> that is that has fallen by the wayside, but it did catch my eye. That's funny. I think for me, part of it is because these are episodes that I haven't seen as many times. I've now seen this episode maybe three or four times in preparation of our recap, but it still pales in the terms of number of times I've seen other episodes that I'm still absorbing some of the main points and I'm less able to let those sink into the background while I look at what actually is in the background. Does this particular episode stand up to three or four viewings? Because I, I, I a little bit felt on the ones I watched it, and I usually do watch multiple times, I just kept waiting for it to start. <laughs> it does feel a lot like set up for our finale. In fairness, that crossed my mind too. Like, okay, maybe they're teeing up some stuff that's going to uh, pay off tangibly next episode. Yeah, this episode and the next episode aren't explicitly listed as part one and part two, but they really are. I mean, really, these last few episodes are just moving in one... Of a piece. So, yeah, let's drop in Commander Harper's explanation of what's going on. Something's gone wrong with the International Space Station. It's losing oxygen. The astronauts on board can't fix it? Not so far. I've got a NASA administrator who wants to see the president. The president's unavailable. Bring him here. Okay. So now he's here in CJ's office. And this, for me, is my biggest issue. This is not a stylistic fluke or anything like that. Uh, at least I don't think you can attribute it to that. This feels just like a, a major error or something in the in the way that it's handled. So the NASA administrator is briefing CJ on the situation. His name is Kelwick. And he says, okay, you know, they need a rescue operation, but space shuttles are grounded. They can't get a space shuttle up there. And it's because of a review. And CJ says, well, whatever, forget the review. Let's get one going to rescue them. And right. Kelwick says, well, one, you know, they can't. There's the, There are repairs going on. And then Kelwick says, that's the civilian shuttle. Oops. And CJ says, sorry. And at no point does anyone address. And then from there, this becomes the crux of this plot. It turns out there is a shuttle, a non-civilian shuttle, a military shuttle that could be used to save these astronauts. Space Force. Space Force, indeed. <laughs> but it's top secret. The whole problem is it's top secret. They can't let anybody see it. They can't let anybody know that they have this thing, even though people assume that they do. Whatever, there's all this secrecy and stuff. Kelwick just casually violates what must be all kinds of levels of security talking to CJ about it. CJ has no idea what he's talking about. And in fact, she spends many minutes in the episode trying to get confirmation that there even is, that he's even talking about what she thinks he's talking about. Like this really slip of the tongue is what's going to unravel this for them? Yeah, I mean, like, how does this... I just, this part doesn't really make sense. Either he's there to talk about actual options that they have. I mean, I guess the military shuttle wouldn't be under the purview of NASA. It would be a Defense Department thing, and NASA's, right? Well, I guess there's a little crossover. I think NASA not technically part of the military, right? No, it's not part of the Department of Defense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Space Forces it would be part of the Air Force. I was going to say Nick Song, the delicious Nick Song, the bubbly and effervescent Nick Song uncovered some good research for us about the Boeing X-37B, which apparently is the closest thing to a space shuttle which the U.S. military possesses. It began as a NASA project, and then the program was transferred to the DOD in 2004. So while not technically part of the military, I guess obviously there's crossover or there's development that then can lead to military projects out of NASA. 
That's right. But then again, we cut away from the rest of the scene and I would like to see CJ say, what are you talking about? Yes, you think she's not letting the guy out of her room, out of her office until he's spilled the beans. Like, you can't just walk out now. I need to know what you're talking about. Yeah, how about a follow-up question? Kate Harper also, surprisingly, does not reach over and then, you know, snap his neck, super spy style, (laughs) to prevent him from saying anything else. (laughs) So CJ later is in the Oval Office, where apparently this is where she's ready to ask her follow-up question. She says... Sir, the NASA administrator alluded to a non-civilian shuttle. She, what she does not say is, and then after he alluded to it, I didn't bother to ask any follow-up questions. Yeah, I thought it'd come straight to you. And then the president just uh, makes a sort of Bartlety, you know, literary, nerdy reference, and then that's it. And, you know. Is this where he references Werner von Braun? Yes. Whose name immediately always puts me in mind of the fantastic Tom Lehrer song. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. It's pretty, pretty <laughs> cutting song. Wow. Werner von Braun, who famously developed the uh, rocket program of the Nazis, and then close on the heels of the resolution of World War II, was recruited by the United States to work for us. Yes. They said, look, we've got a thing that starts with N.A. as well. (laughs) Nice. So CJ gets blown off, and we continue through this episode with this dilemma. Do they send a military shuttle up there? They don't want to use it because of national security concerns. And losing two American astronauts and the Russian astronaut, letting them die, is an acceptable trade-off for being able to keep the military shuttle secret. A fascinating dilemma. Mm Mm-hmm. It's actually a great and intriguing, at least potentially, plotline. It is, yeah. It is, in fact, very reminiscent of Avengers Infinity War. Oh, is it? (laughs) In that movie, throughout the entire thing, characters are faced over and over and over again with the choice between sacrificing one member of their team or half the population in the universe. And they can't make that sacrifice. And a lot of times the person who is up for the sacrifices says, I'm willing to do this. It is an acceptable trade-off to me. But then everybody says, no, 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 no. We're going to fight our way through it. Think of the franchise. (laughs) I was going to say that my mind drifts to Truman's decision whether or not to drop the A-bomb, but Infinity uh, War is also good. (laughs) (laughs) Look, we all have our... uh, Cultural touchstones. Our important, important moments (laughs) in history. (laughs) Okay, sorry. It's a nice scene where Toby says, Would he have been okay about sacrificing himself for national security? He would have insisted on it. But don't ask me what I would have insisted on. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they sunk their teeth in deeply enough to this moral question, this dilemma of the sacrifice of two Americans and one Russian in exchange for military security? No, I do not. I think, again, they raised the specter of a very interesting plot without really digging in enough. It was too surface for me. Where else would you have liked to see it go? Um, Well, I guess I don't even think, you know, in terms of, you know, what I would have done, but there just weren't deep, substantive conversations. Also, you know, certain things were raised in my mind, or they're kind of concerned about the other two astronauts that they're going to take pictures of it and they're going to give up the, the, you know, the biggest military loss of information ever. And, you know, it just made me think, well, can't you make sure they can't take pictures? <laughs> or like, give me your iPhone. 
before we get in this thing, I'm going to I'm going to frisk you and make sure you can't take pictures. And just I don't know, just, you know, there are ancillary issues that you would think a serious life and death discussion would have entailed. And I just wanted to hear uh, more about it. Is there some way to broker a deal so that they can make the use of the military shuttle a reality without necessarily it being uh, an espionage disaster. I think that the scene that really encapsulates all of this is the one in the Oval Office between CJ, Kate, and another thorn in our side, Hutchinson, who Mm -hmm. I'm so over. I'm just, I can't believe this guy still gets to have a job. Is this in the sit room? Uh, No, this is in the Oval Office with the president, where they kind of are running through it again after they've tried a spacewalk which was unsuccessful and... And cost them some oxygen. Yes. The president says, we have a decision to make. And Hutchinson says, this, you know, he makes his argument, the security concerns outweigh the consequences. And CJ is trying to make a case for rescue via the military shuttle. I can't help note the absence of anyone from NASA to make the case for rescue. I don't need anyone to make it. I need more time. I think there is an assumption there. Of course, the president is wrestling with the morality of this. But I think that actually assumes too much. I want to see the president in that moment. CJ's trying to make that argument, but I would like to hear the president think that through. I agree. I'm going to continue the analogy. If, we have, if we've got a movie about uh, Truman's decision whether or not to drop that first atomic bomb, I want to see him wrestling with it. I want to see every single thought that's going into it. I also think they could have sort of humanized the story a little bit. Maybe we don't have the budget to see the spacewalk, but I'd like to know who's up there. And, uh, you know, they could have communicated with them. It would have been interesting to know what the astronauts themselves think. You know, there are a lot of interesting places this could have gone. And I feel like they just settled for raising the specter of a difficult decision without really the battle being joined in a, in a more intellectually stimulating way. What I missed in that moment was the version of the president and the version of the West Wing from the state dinner, where at the end, the president gets on the radio with the folks on the tendership, the USS Hickory, you know, and the grief of losing those sailors is so, like, weighs so heavily on him. Anytime, any kind of military loss, any death of any American personnel weighs on him so much. And I didn't feel like he, it weighed on him here. There wasn't a lot of humanity in the, in the way that he was making his decision. And, and that seemed exceptionally uncharacteristic. Yeah, that's good. I think you've nailed it now. I think that's the perfect West Wing analogy to what's happening in this episode. This is not the Bartlett we've grown to know and love. Yes. And again, I don't think that we're supposed to believe that the president isn't concerned with the morality. I just think that this line, CJ saying, I can't help but notice the absence of anyone from NASA to make the case for rescue. And the president saying, I don't need anyone to make it. I need more time. Feels a little bit like trying to write your way out of the fact that you aren't having the president weigh this decision. Yeah, I agree with you. This is the, you know, this could have sent the old Bartlett into, uh, you know, into another uh, rant in Latin dialogue with God, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, where's that guy? Yeah. Because this is a pretty shitty uh, decision he has to make. Incredibly shitty. Yeah. Ultimately, there's a bit of a cliffhanger in the episode because Annabeth reveals that Greg Brock from the New York Times has released a story about a classified military space shuttle that could be used to rescue the astronauts, but hasn't. And that means somebody who has this information leaked it. And now we've got a national optics situation, which may very well influence the decision. Yeah. Although since Toby's brother talked about it, since 
Kelwick from NASA talked about it. You know, Annabeth has this feeling of it could only come from somebody big. But apparently there are a lot of people who know about it. Hutchinson knows about it. A lot of people know about it. Clearly people who work at NASA and work in the DOD know about it. And those that know about it aren't necessarily that great about keeping it under wraps. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, switching gears here. Sure. Do you have an appreciation for the line? Remember, three feet on the floor at all times. Yes, I wrote that down. I, I got a kick out of that. I assume it's a reference to the Hayes Code. Oh, am I wrong? <laughs> I don't know what that is. What is the Hayes Code? The Hayes Code were the production codes that governed motion picture production in the, I don't know, maybe from the 30s on. This is a mandatory production code that included, among other things, the proviso that during love scenes in movies, either the woman or it might have been either partner had to have one foot on the floor. (laughs) I mean, rather than saying they can't get in bed, there was this really weird clunk-a-lunk rule that uh, love scenes had to include one foot on the floor. That's... uh that's really funny. One other uh, indication of it is, uh, you know, how Rob and Laura Petrie on the Dick Van Dyke show slept in separate beds. Right. I think e- even married couples had to sleep in separate beds. I just thought that's how people slept back then. Well, perhaps it was. Also, the world was in black and white back then. That's also true. Yeah. Josh says this just as Santos is about to go in to meet with Russell about the possible combination of their tickets. He's trying to make a joke. Nobody thinks it's funny. But to me, I heard that and was immediately brought back to high school At my high school, at the time, dorms were divided only into boys and girls. And if you were a boy and you had a girl visitor, you had to get explicit permission to have them in your room. It was only allowed between the hours of 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. The door had to be open and you had to have three feet on the floor. Oh, truly? Yeah. I mean, I know one foot up gives you instant access. (laughs) (laughs) So I I don't really get that rule. So that moment in the episode came out and I um, was thinking about my bygone years in in high school and sneaking around with girls, which brings me to another moment in this episode that I take issue with, which is Zoe and Charlie scene in the White House. Because again, as someone who has some, not a lot, but a little bit of experience sneaking around with girls, this was as poorly planned as you could ever imagine. Charlie, you're sneaking around, you're visiting your girlfriend, your secret Mm -hmm. girlfriend, nobody's supposed to know about this. Here's some pieces of advice that I have for Charlie. As he kisses Zoe and casually walks out into the hallway of the residence, Mm -hmm. one, finish getting dressed in Zoe's room. I thought the same thing too. Put that tie back on. Put the tie on. Yeah. Yeah. He comes out all rumpled and um, really there's no question. You know, he's holding his jacket, his shirt's untucked. Rumpled stiltskin. (laughs) Also send her out first. Have a take a look. The coast is clear. Yeah. Oh, my dad's right here. <laughs> yep. But, you know, unrumple yourself. Have some plausible deniability, at least in your appearance. I completely agree. And then he walks out in his uh, half-dressed state and then takes a beat in the hallway. What are you doing? Don't dilly-dally. Yeah. Don't linger to spike the ball. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah! He should have yelled. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> that would funny. Waking Bartlett. You get dressed. Zoe does a hallway check. Once it's clear, you make a beeline for the exit. What is he thinking? You know, maybe he might have the excuse that, maybe he doesn't realize that sometimes the president gets up in the middle of the night. Oh, wait, no. It was his job to wake up the president in the middle of the night for many years. Good point. 
That said, we find out subsequently that the Secret Service sees all and they talk. Zoe told me about the two of them, not that she had to, because there is a small matter of the Secret Service. The clandestine is a non-starter around here. Or the clandestine, as she says. There's some odd pronunciations in this episode. We get a mispronunciation of prurient, which put me in mind of February. Mm. I felt like Richard had his own February to deal with, as he says, purient. I feel like somebody should have caught that in the mm-hmm. uh, in the shooting stage, and I'm sure I'm clandestine is probably a, an acceptable, acceptable. alternative. Yeah, um, interesting. I should have honed in on that. I didn't hone on hone in on it at all because um, there you go. It's one of these moments where it's a little seed for the entire episode. The clandestine is a non-starter around here. Is a great little piece of dialogue for the entire space shuttle plot as well. Good point. I mean, if the first lady is finding out about Zoe and Charlie from the Secret Service, which really, she sh- I, I think she should not be. Zoe's detail really is supposed to, the whole point that they've said is the Secret Service can't do their job effectively if they're reporting, you know, this is what Georgia Fox says, you know, that she can't tattle on Zoe and also expect Zoe to trust her in a way that lets her do her job. Right. So that seems a bit weird. The only reason I can think of for Abby saying the clandestine is a non-starter around here is to set up the idea that that applies to the space shuttle as well. It's a multi-leak episode. It is. Maybe I should You can't say that. multi-leak. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of people getting it on. Sure. I think there are actually, there are a few dynamics here. We've got Zoe and Charlie post-coitally having gotten it on. Mm-hmm. We also get the Santoses. Mm. Quite interruptus. <laughs> I am ashamed that we both said that at the same time. And also, of course we did. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Josh interrupts them. He prevents them from getting it on. And then I also love the moment between Donna and Josh, which feels like finally a continuation of their extremely long game of foreplay. Yes, you're right. This little teasing bit of back and forth that I love because it feels like it's a Donna and Josh that we haven't had for a long time. And it's also an evolution of their relationship. There's a level of equality to them, finally, professionally, where they're trading thoughts on Santos becoming the VP for Russell. You want him to accept? You don't. I have concerns. He's not hitman enough. He's too much voltage at the bottom of the ticket. Overshadows the nominee. Gets people wishing the names were reversed. Gets people willing to wait until next time. How'd you get so smart about this? I had a good teacher. Thanks. I meant well. That's cute. It's a cute little zinger. It is cute. And what makes it the cutest and zingiest of all is you don't really know if she's joking or not. Right. Yep. It's good delivery. It, it could go either way. Good line, well delivered. It's coy. And, I, and you know, and we get a little shot of Josh letting it hit him, you know, and he's, he realizes he's been zung. Yeah. And he doesn't... Uh... I also liked his reaction shot because rather than just being amused by it, like, I really know it, it's more like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it, yeah. kind of a- it actually lands with the, uh, with the little pain. Yeah, he hears the stinger in the zinger. Nice. I think this also sets up the conversation between Russell and Santos. This idea of who is the teacher and who can learn from whom comes back in a much less cute way when Russell and Santos finally talk about their possible ticket. Santos goes in there and Josh has said, when you go in there, find a way to say yes, which is, I I thought is really interesting instruction. Like I thought that was a really great understanding of what position Santos finds himself in. I agree. Absolutely. That's why I was sorry ultimately not to see 
him struggle to do so. I guess we are left to believe ultimately that he maybe attempted to do so, but just couldn't find a way to say yes. But I would like to have seen it. I would like to have seen that struggle. I would like to have seen Jimmy Smith play that moment. And there's nothing substantively that I saw. I think you're getting at that moment where um, Russell says, I'm sure there's things that I could learn from you. Well, uh, I know. Just as there are undoubtedly things you could learn from me. I didn't find it offensive. I thought it was, you know, rather than being completely obsequious and just sort of kissing Santos's ass, he's saying there's something in this for both of us. So I'm, I'm going to give you a real voice, respect you. I think there are things I can learn from you. And, and, and you know, he has also got enough uh, self-esteem to say, I think there's also something I can bring to this and that you, you can learn from it. It is interesting. He is saying something that could be cool and setting things up for a partnership. But there is something stylistically, both in terms of his delivery and just a couple of specific specific verbal choices that I think don't let Santos in. He says, I'm sure there's things that I can learn from you. Like, believe it or not, I, is that what you're saying? There's a little bit of, uh, of, you know, one wouldn't expect it, but I'm sure there are things I'm I sure can learn from I'm sure there's things that I can learn from you, yeah. And he says it with, with a little a bit. A tinge of, of that, perhaps, yeah. And then he says, just as there are undoubtedly things you can learn from me. And it's funny because another read of those same lines could present them with equal weight. I'm sure there's things that I can learn from you. But he says it in a kind of casual, I don't know. I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I, I'm curious now then, having only watched it once, to go back and watch that scene again. Because I, I, I remember, I probably should have watched it, at least that scene again, because I do remember thinking, once I realized we weren't getting the full serving that I wanted of that conversation, like, was that what tipped him off? Was yes. there something in the flavor of that delivery or what he said that that was the end? I think it was. I think it was something about the delivery. I think there's a personality issue for Santos, and that's really what's happening. Because in some ways, it feels like it's prescripted. Everybody knows what's going to happen. He's going in to have this conversation where he's going to get offered the vice presidency. And Santos has this funny line of saying, do you want to flip a coin? Like as if as if maybe it isn't predetermined what, what the conversation is going to be. And uh, Russell kind of has a nervous chuckle about that. So even though the stage is set for it to go a certain way, Santos is not at all convinced of his own part. And it feels like a misread somehow, you know, that Russell isn't actually completely obsequious. He ought to be, right? Like, he needs to be humble in this moment because he's asking Santos to humble himself by accepting a lesser position. So you've got it on paper, like, you're going to be the boss. So why not take this moment to make this guy just feel like he's amazing, he's great, Interesting. Maybe it's just because I played Will Bailey. <laughs> and so I'm somehow uh, I lean towards Russell or giving him the benefit of the doubt. I thought his pitch was fairly good. I get what you're saying about there's something in the articulation of the I can teach you and I can learn from you that sort of gives him the upper hand in that power dynamic. But I, I felt he was fairly that, that, that being full on obsequious wouldn't be credible. I mean, you know, ultimately, this is a person who feels that he should be president and Santa should be vice president, you know? Yeah. And also, I, the other thing I did like about Russell's pitch was that it included, I thought, a surprising candor about his tenure as vice president, how he was not happy with the power dynamic there. And, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a voice in a way I wasn't given one. Yeah. And, and I thought that was a sort of a refreshing approach that I wouldn't necessarily have expected him to take, you know, rather than say how great it's been and whatever. He's, he's betraying some frustration with the position he was given as VP. Yeah, I liked that moment a lot. But I ultimately, I agree with you. I want to see that scene play out, especially having enjoyed the Vinick 
Butler conversation so much, where there, there's another sort of non, it's not really a refusal because he cut, cuts him off before he can make the offer, but like to see that moment where he tries to offer him the vice presidency and Butler says, I'm going to stop you right there. I wanted to see the moment where Santos ultimately says, Right. That's it. That's We're robbed of that moment. And not only are we as viewers robbed of the moment, but Matt Santos is robbed a little bit because we don't really know. We don't know what he had to say. That's an acting moment and a writing moment I want to experience. Why did he turn him down? How did he turn him down? Did he leave that room like, not only am I not going to be your VP, but I'm going to kick your ass. Is there a, you know, right? Uh, that's when I decided to kick your ass moment? Like, what happened? That's a great callback. I think I, I do feel like there are things that uh, you can undoubtedly learn from me is when I decided to kick your ass is probably what we're meant to assume because that's the last thing we get. And then he walks out. But again, just like with the president and the arguments for why they should save the astronauts, I would have liked it if they didn't just assume, you know, they kind of yada, yada, yada it. Right. And then Russell says this, yada, yada, yada. He didn't accept and then immediately afterwards, I do love the moment in the elevator between Santos and Josh. Mad at me? No. Oddly. Disappointed. Proud, I think. It's a great line and it's a great performance by Brad. And again, it's just like, I like the continued evolution between these two characters and their relationship. Mm -hmm. I like that scene too. Although again, I feel like I don't really know exactly what his thought process was and I wish I did, but. Oh, Santos's thought process. Uh, or Josh's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of get it and this is an audacious thing to do and what the hell and we're taking the risk, but substantively, I don't know what's changed, you know. And then we get, sub, you know, after this, Josh's admission that to Leo that he was pressing Santos to take it, but he was wrong about that. You know, I'm still not sure exactly why. Really? I, I feel like he articulates it here where he says, I told him to say yes. I was wrong. He's twice the man Russell is on his best day. Ten times, and Russell doesn't have that many best days. Josh just really believes in his candidate. He really doesn't believe in Russell, and he just couldn't stomach it. And so I feel like we did get Josh's point of view. I guess, except we already knew Josh thought that. I guess maybe unfairly, I'm looking for something a little bit more revelatory. Yes, we know we know that Josh thinks his guy is twice the guy that Russell is, but there were some pragmatic aspects to considering, and indeed in Josh's view, taking the VP slot on the ticket. So I'm not sure what change. It's just kind of, you know, I guess it's a little bit wishy-washy for me. It's like, you know what? No, you know, you really are better than him. I can see your, the red pen of your teacher comments circling Josh's thesis statement and saying, needs more supporting sentences. Well said. There's a moment in that scene between Josh and Leo where he says, Santos turned Russell down. Okay. Okay. So now you get him to one, turn it down. And that, that little moment reminded me of Sexy Beast but I'm just going to have to turn this opportunity down. No, you're just going to have to turn this opportunity, yes. Ha, <laughs> that's great. Back to the Charlie storyline for a second. How about this bombshell when he tells the president, I don't want to sneak around the White House anymore. I'm not trying to break you two up. No, sir, I'm talking about actually seeing more of Zoe. More time with her. Spent together. Being together. And such. He's trying to, in a very awkward way, trying to tell the president, like, 
this is a thing that's going on. We would like it to be out in the open so it's not such a weird thing. And the president misinterprets it, right. understandably, because Charlie's being extremely cryptic about the whole thing. The president misinterprets it as thinking that Charlie wants to propose to Zoe. And um, Charlie, that is not what Charlie means. Is that clear that it's not? It is not what he, it is not what he means. And I think it's pretty far from his mind but then when the president says it, it suddenly opens up this door. I'm sure it's something that Charlie has thought about it from time to time. Right. But probably thought about it in a way where he's brushed it off like, well, that's outside of the realm of possibility or, you know, there, there's no way for us to even begin to have that conversation. But then when the president brings it up and says, are you, you know. And make an honest woman out of her. <sighs> yeesh. Um, yeesh. But still, Charlie stops before he leaves and he says, sir, would I have your blessing? I mean, one, holy crap. Charlie and Zoe are back together. Yeah. That's awesome. Are they ever? And not only are they back together, yeah, there's suddenly this little tiny pinpoint of hope that not only are they back together, maybe they will live happily ever after. Perhaps so. So in summary, Charlie, you have my blessing, mm. but I will also say still that mustache does not have my blessing. <laughs> I don't know. You saw it this time. Maybe it's growing on me more uh, better than it grows on him, but I kind of <laughs> like it. <laughs> Boom. I didn't love uh, some of the dialogue. The initial sit room scene, the dialogue's a little precious when they're sort of dancing around, sharing information or not. And the scene between President and Dr. Bartlett, the president says, why have I been so ostentatiously kept out of the loop? Yes. Dr. Bartlett, golly, one wonders. I don't, there's something about it that's, uh, I don't quite buy it. This is, again, to me, an example of writing to try and convince us that your characters are smart rather than letting them just be smart through the substance of what they say. It's sort of like drawing little flowers around all the words. And it is, it feels unnecessary. It also feels like maybe it's making up for a lack of actual smartness. Yeah. And as a counterpoint to that, I picked out just one line that I thought was just, couldn't be more simple. And yet I found it lovely. Toby's sum up of the situation with the shuttle. The sun, it reveals it. Yeah. You know, sometimes something simply put, can land in a way that uh, overwritten dialogue does not. Yeah. I notice also a little moment, again, of Will Bailey's engaging what I will hereafter refer to as cheap thrills. Cheap thrills! Little mini phone flip in the uh, Roosevelt room when Josh comes in to talk to me. Yep. <laughs> it's a chance to quote Sia, I love cheap thrills. Nice. And then I think actually the final moment is worthy of discussion. After staying behind the scenes during a Republican nominating convention that fairly roasts President Bartlett in order to stain Russell's connection to him, Vinnick comes out and has sort of a lovely, gracious kind of tribute to President Bartlett and the kind of uh, commander-in-chief or president that he's been. And then President Bartlett tells us that Vinnick just gained 5 million Democratic votes Sorry, you do like that? No, I didn't love it. I don't, first of all, I don't love being told what the moment means. Like, in case you missed it. Really, I actually appreciated that one because while it was happening, I was like, oh, come on. You know, like, I know we're supposed, I actually started to feel like it felt unrealistic to me that Vinick would even say anything positive in this context. I felt a little bit like, all right, we get it. He's noble. He's heroic. He's bigger than the party and everything. And, and I thought, but yeah, but it's the Republican National Convention. Why would he do this? This seems ridiculous. I felt like they were going too far. And so then when the president says, yeah, that bastard just picked up 5 million Democratic votes, I was like, there you go. Those are his political instincts. 
Well, I mean, I guess I agree and I disagree with you. I wanted to say to the screen, you know, he just presided over from behind the scenes and it's not like a candidate doesn't have any say into what the tenor of a convention is going to be. So like, it's a little bit on Vinick that there were however many days of Bartlett bashing. Uh, and then he comes out and says that. But for some reason, I guess I kind of liked living in that moment of, is this real? Is this not? I guess rather than having it neatly wrapped in a bow and being told, no, this is pure politics and this is why he did it and this is what he's going to get out of it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm changing my mind as I talk to you, but I kind of liked living in that moment where I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, really? Should I admire Vinick for this or is this calculating? I guess I thought it was more nuanced to sort of go, wait, wait, what's happening here? Am I supposed to dig this or am I supposed to not? The way I would think some of the electorate would. I think I just, I don't know that I would have gotten there. If they hadn't had that line, I would have felt a little bit like, I was being manipulated into liking this guy in using methods that felt unrealistic. I really thought that this was just like character development, saying, look at how sort of selfless this guy is, that he's willing to take this moment where the spotlight is on him and actually turn the spotlight onto President Bartlett instead. I see. Okay, well, because for me, I felt provoked for the first time and really hooked by the episode with that speech because I was, uh, it was uncomfortable and I was trying to sit with, is this... What it seems to be, should I give it just face value, or is this just crass politics? After all this negative stuff, he comes in and he looks like the bigger guy than the rest of the party even. And I don't know, I just, I, I liked sitting with that uncomfortable feeling, trying to figure it out during the uh, flintel as opposed to uh, the wrap-up. But I see the value in both. Yeah, I didn't like it up until that part. I actually did not like that moment when he's giving that speech until the president says he just picked up 5 million Democratic votes. Then I was like, oh, that's that actually worked for me to admire Vinnick more. Like the, the moment of him giving President Bartlett compliments, I was like, oh, they're trying to get me to like him more and I'm resistant to it. And then when it turns out he's doing that and it works out as a win for him as well, it's like, ah, oh, this guy is really, he's on top of his game. All right. I felt like I was part of the electorate watching it before the president told me what I should think about, okay, it's just that. I don't know. I also, you know, this goes back to other things. I don't like somehow when our heroes are the defining element of what happened or how or what to feel. Like, I, I like, I'd rather like kind of draw my own conclusions sometimes. I mean, I guess that's it. Like, I wouldn't have drawn that conclusion. So I needed it. Well, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I, I'm not saying that's my conclusion. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's sort of more interesting to go, I don't know exactly, you know, Vinick is classy. It does seem like the kind of thing. He didn't praise any policies of Bartlett's. Like he ran, he kind of walked the line so he was able to accomplish both. And that's what's so great about him. I mean, because, because it wouldn't work if he were a different kind of Republican or a different kind of candidate. The fact that he is moderate and he is, you know, the, the reason why the election is so dangerous is because he is a kind of candidate who can pick up not only Republican votes, but make a lot of independence break for him and even possibly pick, you know, in moments like this, he can even pick up Democratic votes. We disagree. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was interesting what Toby says when he watches the speech, because of what we talked about in the last episode, the contrast between Santos and Russell in the Oval Office with the president and then Vinick and the president eating ice cream. Toby says, Arnold Vinick just positioned himself as Jed Bartlett's natural successor. How'd he do that? Without one mention, without so much as an allusion to either one, he managed to dismiss Russell and Santos as puny, dwarf-like children trying to get a seat at the grown-ups table. It's the same thing that we said of feeling like these two are children and these two are the adults. Yeah, I wrote that down as another moment I didn't like. Really? Yeah. 
because you felt like it was enough in the previous episode the way that it was depicted without having to be stated explicitly. Exactly. It's funny that you draw the parallel. Yeah. So that's just a stylistic thing that you like. You die. I don't like being. I guess it's a feeling spoon fed. It's like I kind of, I kind of get what's going on. Like you don't have to say it. But sometimes I guess some of these moments feel like in case you missed it. Here's what happened. I don't know. I, I guess like I don't know that I would expect everyone who's being caught up in sort of the text of what he's saying and like following along with the episode to also catch the fact that he only talked about the president and he didn't talk about the other nominees. And therefore, because of doing that, this is the end result. This is what he gets out of it. See, I don't think that's a problem. In the Aaron Sorkin West Wing, lots of people miss lots of things all the time. And that's why, that's why, wow. that's what I think so. I think that's why it was a more interesting, more sophisticated show. It's like, wait, did I, did I get that right? What just happened? And instead of going, let me just make sure here are the 10 things you have to know at this, at the end of this episode. And I mean, I agree with you that, that there are things, as we've talked about in this episode, there are things that I'm like, okay, that I think were misses, but these I don't think qualify for me. I feel like they're, uh, I think they're, worth mentioning what he's done. You know, like it gives you a little bit more explicit ammo about how shrewd Vinick is. I think you might end up being like so caught up in what he's saying about the president and stuff like that, that you might in fact miss the fact what, so what? <laughs> that you might in fact miss the important sort of political stratagem of not mentioning either of them by name. Uh, to me, that's not a catastrophe. Ooh, some people didn't pick up on something. <laughs> I mean, I think you're overestimating the Sorkin years in this at this point right now. Well, maybe. So maybe for, forget any mention of the Sorkin years. It just in terms of television and, and good TV, I, th I like TV where it leaves you going, wait a minute, what exactly happened there? Or I, that seems, she's talking out of both sides. I just, I, I like being in that messier area where I'm not 100% sure exactly what every moment means and what every word and, and uh, have a character tell me. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think I've, I agree with you. I also feel like that. I, I don't want to be spoon fed, but it's also possible to go the other way and be like, hey, you're missing an opportunity to sort of show us something. But I agree. I feel like they did show it to us. I like the show it to us part, not the tell us what happened part. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Let's take a quick break now. And when we return, Rishi will speak with Jennifer Palmieri. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to make a website for whatever it is you want to showcase online. It could be your art, your music, your podcast, your business, anything. That's why we made thewestwingweekly.com a Squarespace site. I recommend it to all of my friends, everybody I know who's starting something up. You can get beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers and analytics that help you grow in real time. That's right. So if you've ever pondered having a website for your special thing, whatever it may be, check out Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Do it. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by SimpliSafe. According to studies, just over 10% of break-ins are planned beforehand. The rest are spur of the moment, crimes of opportunity. In other words, random. You know what's crazy? Only one in five homes have home security. That doesn't make sense. Maybe that's because most companies don't make it very easy. It can be expensive or it can take too much time to set up. It's a hassle. Oh, but we know one company that makes it super easy. Yeah, we do. Simply Safe. 
Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24-7 monitoring for just a fraction of the cost of competitors. That's right. And it's designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling. It's easy to order. There's no contract, no hidden fees or fine print. And that's why it's won a ton of awards from CNET to the New York Times wire cutter. To check it out, visit simplysafe.com slash West You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. That's right. So go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash West That way they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash West The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article. Hey, Josh, I just texted you a link for a rug that I think would look really good in your studio. It's from Article. Oh, nice. It's the parallel handwoven rug. And they promise that the beautiful pattern of this rug will lull me into a state of meditative chill. I could use that. I think so. <laughs> it's gorgeous, but I see why you picked it. <laughs> Article is a great place to get beautiful furniture and decor. Both of us feature article items at our own homes. And if you want to get some beautiful article stuff for your home, Article's offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. You can get this parallel wave rug that I'm trying to get Josh to buy. That's right. But if that's not your jam, check out all the other stuff they've got. They've recently released their 2019 Outdoor Collection, with three distinctive styles. Looks like a, a nice setup for hanging out maybe by the pool with a cocktail. To get your $50 off, just go to article.com slash West That's article.com slash West and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash West to get 50 bucks off your first purchase of 100 bucks or more. Baba poofs! And now back to the show. Our guest this episode is Jennifer Palmieri. You've heard her on our podcast before. She was the communications director for the Obama White House before leaving to work on Secretary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. She's also the author of the best-selling book, Dear Madam President, An Open Letter to the Women Who Will Run the World. Rishi spoke to her about this episode and how it compared to the Democratic National Convention in 2016. Hillary Clinton obviously got the nomination, but there were over 1,800 delegates for Bernie Sanders, so it wasn't the perfectly smooth convention process that a party would hope for, much like in Things Fall Apart. Here's their conversation. When you watched this episode, did it feel similar to your experience at all? That uncertainty and chaos and that, you know, desire for party unity? It filled me with anxiety, residual anxiety from previous experiences, and it also filled me with anxiety for 2020. Yeah. And imagining what the 2020 Democratic Convention was going to be like and imagining myself in the position of, as Josh was, trying to convince a candidate who came really far in the process but didn't seemingly have enough votes to get the nomination. And, you know, do you convince that person to take the number two slot and like how hard that is? They did a good job with the tension between like when Josh has to come back and face Leo and Leo is upset because... Santos hasn't taken the running mate slot. You know, I, I've had that same kind of tension because I, you know, I worked for President Obama and then I was working for Hillary. And there's a sense of, you know, what team are you really on? And Leo pushes Josh like, you are going to do this for us, for the president, for your party. I'm not because I don't agree with it. As if to say, you're still part, remember what family you're really a member of. And so what was a fight like that that you had? 
there was a little tension about how the Obama White House handled the Russia investigation, for example, right? So there were some people in the Clinton world that wanted the Obama administration to be more forward-leaning about the role that they could see that Russia was playing and some frustration that they weren't being more aggressive. It is a tough moment when you have to look at your friend and think, I'm not sure where your allegiance is. Hmm lie anymore or where they should, you know, because you're all so sympathetic. You're thinking, well, he's working for the other candidate now. And as much as he loves the president, are your obligations to your new boss and and advising him? So President Obama officially endorsed Secretary Clinton on, I think it was June 9th of 2016. Mm -hmm. Was there pressure from your side of things on the Obama team to come out sooner than that. It's one of the points of tension in the West Wing is that the Bartlett administration is not going to endorse any of the Democratic nominees. He says he's going to stay neutral, but he wants there to be unity and, and, you know, so they can come out with a clear candidate. Of course, if he were to actually endorse one of them, it would help things along in that process. Yeah. Did you feel like, were there people, maybe you or of your colleagues that were saying, come on, let's just like, can we just make this happen? She was his secretary of state. Why won't you just come out and endorse explicitly? I knew President Obama had a lot of love and respect for Hillary Clinton, wanted her to be the next president. But I also respected that, you know, he understood, you know, as the president, as the head of the party, he wanted to stay neutral and they like really didn't do things to help us Mm -hmm. and thought that that might help bring everybody together better at the end and that he could be there at the end to be a peacemaker. I will admit that I had like a couple panicked phone calls that I made. (laughs) During the primary, early on, I called Valerie Jarrett and I was like, I don't know, like, I'm really worried about this. I thought that Sanders was a really formidable candidate and he was good at it and thought that uh, we could be, you know, like in a bad situation. And I wanted, you know, my friends in the Obama White House to know, <laughs> in case you think it feels like we got it, it does not feel like that at all. And Valerie told the president and Valerie told me that the president said, oh, that Jen, she like worries too much. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which I was like, well, uh, it's uh, sort of true that I do. Sort of true that I was right. Sort of true that he was right. Because in the end, like she did win and she did win pretty handily. But I'll tell you, like where I felt supported by my friends in the Obama White House was I could tell they weren't in the press trashing us. You know, a lot of people were saying, like, why is it so hard for Hillary Clinton to lock up this nomination? They were the only people that I knew, you know, like, weren't actually trashing us, weren't rolling their eyes about, like, why can't they get it together? And that, like, was just sort of a a moral support that I felt like I got for them. Because every nominee does have to win a nomination on their own. You know, I think even if President Obama had tried to weigh in for Hillary, I'm not sure that it would have made a much difference early on. But, like, what does help? It's just the moral support of your friends and colleagues, either not trashing you or, you know, like if you want to call to just then about how hard it all is, they're like, yeah, it is. You know what? You guys are doing great. You have like a really tough race you got to run and you're doing great. I think that's shown so well in the episode. Josh has Leo, who's somewhat neutral, but still clearly has this position of wanting to support him. But then he also doesn't have it with Toby. You know, he like looks to Toby for some kind of collegial moral support. And Toby still feels betrayed by him from having left. I mean, were there people who said, when you told people that you were going to go work for Secretary Clinton, did you have people saying, what are you doing? Why aren't you finishing this out with us? 
Yeah, in the beginning, not everyone thought it was such a great idea in the beginning. <laughs> um, I'm very close with Dennis McDonough, who is the White House Chief of Staff. Dennis was not super fired up in the very beginning at the idea. But the way I had looked at it and think the way President Obama looked at it was it was the best use of me because I had worked for the Clintons before because I'd been through a lot of hard political fights. So Dennis and the president both came around. I wonder how you feel about this comparison. There's the Josh Lyman comparison that we already talked about. But in some ways, the character on the West Wing that might be most similar to your position in this episode is Will Bailey, my esteemed co-host Josh Molina's character. Yes. Because he's running the candidate that comes with this level of incumbency, you know, the the sitting vice president, who is the presumptive nominee and has the lead in the number of delegates, even though it's still proving to be a fight. Is that a fair comparison? Yes, it is. I did have that same thought. And it's like, it's the least fun job in politics is working for the uber frontrunner, whether that person is a sitting vice president or a former vice president or, you know, as it was with Hillary, because Basically, every question you get is, why are you not doing better, right? It's just like, you don't get the West Wing-like inspiration and thrilling moments where your guy or gal comes out of nowhere to capture New Hampshire. You know, there's none of that. It's just like all a battle of attrition. Before the decision was made that Senator Kane was going to be the running mate, was there discussion for the sake of party unity or for anything like that to try and get Senator Sanders to be the vice presidential running mate? Yeah, it was discussed. And, you know, Hillary and Sanders had private conversations themselves. I don't know what those discussions were. Yeah. We considered it very seriously because, you know, it could make a lot of sense. But in the end, I thought what you really need is a governing partner. Under that measurement, Kane rose to the top of that list. And, you know, also consider she was asking some of the people that she's consulting about this or people who had the job before, right? Right. Her husband and President Obama. And not that they said pick Tim Kane, but they both said, you got, you know, you got to remember, like, this is somebody you're going to spend every day with. Hopefully you're going to spend every day with this person for the next eight years. Yeah. <laughs> so think about that. How are you going to feel when they walk in the room, when they walk into the meeting every morning? And, you know, as well as obviously, can, you know, can do the job. Do you get to weigh in on decisions that the DNC made about the convention, like having Senator Warren as the keynote speaker? Yes. I'll say that the convention staff was careful to not include the Clinton team and any of that kind of planning until we got to June and she had secured enough delegates to know to be the nominee, even though she wasn't officially the nominee. And I suspect that they continued to talk with Sanders' team all through that as well, you know, keep them abreast on the chance that something could happen at the convention and he could get and he become, could become the nominee. It was not something that I had expected that Senator Sanders was the one who nominated her from Vermont and put her over the top, as Hillary did in 2008 for President Obama. Right. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules. I move that all votes, all votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. It was really generous of Senator Sanders 
to do that. I certainly thought the same of Hillary when she did it in 2008. Yeah, that's a classy move. Yeah, it's a total classy move. It really does have this physical moment where the party literally comes together and makes a decision that you're going to support this nominee. And I think that ritual matters. It's an interesting thing to think about what Milwaukee is going to be like, because all options are possible, including the brokered convention, where we have a situation like y'all did on the show, where you're deciding who the nominee is in Milwaukee. That could happen. Do you have any advice for the campaigns that are heading into 2020 about what they should expect or what makes the most sense and what they might need to do for the sake of party unity? Yeah, I think that it's very hard to game that out. I think you got to look at the moment you're in and think, you know, do I believe my candidate is the best candidate to win the nomination? And if so, then your advice has got to be, you know, to your boss, you got to, you know, hang in there and stay in it and not think that this is a dry run for something else. There's something kind of unfair about the process in that throughout the primaries, you're trying to convince people that this is the only answer. But in a situation like, certainly like on the West Wing, but even in 2016, where it's a little bit close, you've got this whiplash where after the nominee is announced, you have to ask everybody to suddenly switch gears and everybody's supposed to come together and support this one person who had been their, your opponent just days earlier. I know. And it's hard to wrap your head around. I remember, I, you know, I worked for John Edwards in 2004. He lost and I went to Ohio on behalf of John Kerry. But I got to tell you, the day I got my Mary at johncarry.com email address was a really rough day. It was, you're just like, oh, this is so soul crushing. Really? Wow. That is fascinating to me, that moment that you get your email address and your heart sinks. It was brutal. It was brutal. I had my John Edwards bumper stick on my car for a while and somebody was like, you really can't be driving around Ohio with your John Edwards sticker on the car. But, you know, after you've done it once, you know, it's part of the ritual of democracy. And it's something that, you you know, I always have felt privileged to be part of. And you want to help your team see it all the way through. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast and giving me your thoughts on this episode. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. That does it for another episode of the West Wing Weekly. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Nick Song for their help with the show. Our next episode is going to be a live episode in Washington, D.C. Woo! And it'll be the finale of season six. And we'll be joined by Kate Harper herself, Mary McCormick, and LOD, Lawrence O'Donnell. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks to Radiotopia for letting the West Wing Weekly be a part of your family of excellent podcasts. You can learn about all the shows at radiotopia.fm. Okay. Okay. What's next? Hey, here's another Radiotopia show you might enjoy. It's Ear Hustle, one of my favorite podcasts. Ear Hustle shares stories about daily life in San Quentin State Prison from the perspective of those living it. And season four just launched. Erlon Woods is the co-host of Ear Hustle, and he got some pretty exciting news last fall. As a result, this season is going to be a little different than the first three seasons. Reception is a place where everything filters through to the opening of the zoo. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor, and we are back 
with Season 4 of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. On Ear Hustle, we bring you stories about what life is like inside San Quentin State Prison in California. Prison is horrible. I, I, I hate it here. And I really put the twang in. And forever and ever, amen. And so all the white guys, yeah, brother, <laughs> sing, brother. I knew I had them, right? And this season, we're doing something really different. We're also telling stories about life outside prison, post-incarceration. So a lot of people ask me what it was and how long I got to wear it and why do I have it on and like, damn, it seems like you locked up, you still got to wear that and how long you got to wear that? Outside stories, inside stories, it all starts with episode one of season four of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is back. So don't miss Ear Hustle's fourth season on EarHustleSQ.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Radiotopia.